Welcome to the Flint Catholic Podcast. My name is Father Tony Smila. And I'm Michael Hasso. So today what we're going to do is uh, we're going to invite you to get out your June edition of the Faith Catholic Magazine. And we're going to go to, uh, to what page are we going to start with? Uh, let me see. What page is that? You know, it doesn't even say on it. Oh my goodness. Doesn't have a number there? No. And it Wow. Does. Sorry. It's amazing. Oh, 25. 25. It's right, right after the picture with um, the Bishop. Bishop Boyer glowing yeah. the glowing the bible the glowing harry <laughs> potter picture of the bishop I yeah and i like that picture it's just a little a little, little glowy yeah so anyway today we're going to be <laughs> today we're going to be talking about um the prophetic mission of the laity so the 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 article's entitled the participation of the laity in the prophetic mission of christ um written by brian flynn yes written by brian flynn so shout out brian mm-hmm. hope you're listening um there we go so what I want to talk about is two things here, because I think the word prophecy or prophetic can can get confused because it's used in different contexts. So we have both the prophetic mission of the church and of all Christians, and then we also have prophetic gifts. So I'm going to talk about a little bit of both of those and how they how they play together. So the first thing I want to talk about, though, is the word charism. Uh, it might be a, a new word to our listeners, but basically all this means is gift. It's a, a charism is a spiritual gift. Um, but as with everything, the church often has fancy words that can disguise no <laughs> the way. meaning at times. <laughs> no. So um, a charism, what it is, it's a spiritual supernatural gift for the building up of the church. So by virtue of our baptism... All Christians receive charisms. They're different, but they're all. But every Christian has them and has multiple, and they're all for the building up of the church. Now, when we talk about the prophetic gifts, this is a gift that all Christians have in some measure, but some have in much greater measure. And so the first scripture verse I want to go to, this is from Joel 2.28, but also quoted in Acts by St. Peter in his very first homily. Um, And it says, In these last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So it's pretty clear here that according to the prophet Joel and according to our first pope, all men shall prophesy. All shall see visions and all shall dream dreams. And if you've spent any length of time reading Acts of the Apostles, you will see that almost quite literally, it seems that everyone in the early church did. Um, And all into the lives of the saints as well. So what is prophecy? In this context, in like I said, in the context of a spiritual gift, prophecy is not only what most people think, which is the the telling of future events so you you have the supernatural knowledge that something is going to happen in the future before it happens um but it's also identifying acts of god in the present moment so for instance how this might play out is maybe you're speaking to a friend about a particular situation and they're just like they seem distraught they they're not sure what's going on and you're able to speak into that prophetically and say, no, I think that God is in this moment and here's how. And you, you know, 
deliver it in a in a very specific way that that speaks to what they need. Um, but then there's also another manifestation of the gift of prophecy, um, and this one comes from Scott Hahn. This is in the um, the Ignatius Catholic Study Bible, and in the footnotes he talks about um, how the gift of prophecy gives the person with this gift the ability to proclaim the word of God in a very effective way. So they're able to make the word of God particularly compelling. So I don't know if you've ever been, for instance, at Mass where you hear somebody like a lector proclaiming the word of God, and for whatever reason, it's just particularly compelling. Now, part of that's the word of God, and the word of God is always effective, right? But then part of it is also the delivery and the person proclaiming that word. Yeah, it's almost like there's like a, a, it's almost as if there's a supernatural aspect to what is being proclaimed. Yeah. Because there is. Yeah, exactly. That's the point. Like it's meant to strike us in a way that we can't really explain. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've, I've certainly felt that. I've, I've um, experienced that at times. Yeah, definitely. And so with the gift of prophecy, we can actually see this um, in 1 Corinthians. St. Paul, he's talking about the gift of tongues. Um, which is the sort of prayer language that to outside hearers can often just sound like nonsense. Um, and what happens with with this gift is that St. Paul, he was seeing it so much so much in the Corinthian church that he he actually started to give them guidelines, like pastoral guidelines on how to use the different gifts. And he says, don't like the gift of tongues is a good thing, but, Prophecy, prophesying, <laughs> um, getting those tenses mixed up, mm-hmm. prophesying is an even better gift because if people come in, he says, if outsiders come into the liturgy, into the mass, and they hear you speaking in tongues, they're just going to be like, this is weird, and leave. But if they come in and they hear you prophesying, if they hear you speaking the word of God in a compelling way or telling of future events that happen, God will be glorified, he says, and they will know that your God is the true God. And so he urges them to prophesy more than anything. And so it's really interesting here because he, he also highlights essentially the, uh, the role of prophecy, and, and that's evangelization, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, but all Christians have the ability to prophesy, clergy and laity, all Christians. However, some have the gift of prophecy in greater measure than others. So every Christian has the ability to prophesy, but only a few are called prophets. And we can see this throughout Acts of the Apostles. Who prophesied in Acts? Well, it seems like everyone did. Obviously, the apostles have several well-known, have several well-known examples, but what about the laity? There's several key moments that, that were literally pivotal to the history of the church yeah. um, in really big ways. So I want to talk about Ananias. And, and this is the second one, by the way. I just want to clarify. Not Ananias and Sapphira. Right. <laughs> um, right. You'll know why if, you, if you've read <laughs> Acts of the Apostles. But we're talking about the second one. This comes from Acts chapter 9. So... Acts chapter 9 is famous for the conversion of Saul, who later becomes Paul. And 
Ananias was just this ordinary layperson who received prophetic revelation from God to heal Saul. And basically what happens is that Ananias starts arguing with God. <laughs> well, I mean, who can blame him, right? Yeah, no kidding. Because literally at the end of chapter 8, Saul had just murdered Stephen, who was the first martyr of the church. And now he receives a prophetic revelation to go pray over Saul, and God says he will be healed. And it's interesting how Ananias responds to this um, to this prophetic revelation. He Notice it doesn't say anything about him doubting that it was God. Mm-hmm. It it doesn't say like, oh, I don't know what to do with this with this revelation I received. You know, this has never happened before. Yep. He just argues with God and he's like, <laughs> no, I don't want to. I've heard about this guy and what he's been doing to mm-hmm. the church. And so anyway, he ends up giving in and he goes and, and lays hands on, on Saul and he heals him. And when he heals him, he has another prophetic revelation and he tells Saul about the prophetic revelation he had received on the road to Damascus when he went blind and he tells him what he heard from Jesus. So these are examples of prophecy upon prophecy. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting about this is that he re- he received this prophetic word and he could have done nothing about it. I mean, how many times does that happen to us? Yeah. You know, where you receive something and you're like, I'm pretty sure that's from God. And you're like, uh, I don't know if I really want to act on this just yet. <laughs> it seems like God's asking me to do something that's uncomfortable. Yeah. Eh, I think yeah. I'll pass. Yeah, God rarely does that. Yeah, right? <laughs> Come on now. Yeah. So he acts on this in faith, and then it's like in faith he receives another prophetic revelation. And it's through this that actually St. Paul is converted. Mm-hmm. St. Paul wasn't converted even when he heard the voice of Jesus. He was still blind for three days after that. Yep. He was converted once he was healed and prophesied over. And so Ananias, I mean, who can even imagine the value of him just responding to that one prophetic word? That's right. He ended up praying over the man who would become known as the apostle to the Gentiles. Hero status. Yeah. I mean, honestly, people talk about St. Paul all the time, but very few mention Ananias. Mm-hmm. But without Ananias, we would never have St. Paul. That's right. So so anyway, that that was just amazing to me as I, as I was pondering this topic. And, you know, God didn't send St. Peter. He didn't send the first pope. He didn't send one of the apostles. He sent this random layperson to go prophesy over Saul. And then the next one that we have is Cornelius. And this comes almost immediately after in Acts chapter 10. I love this chapter. This is one of my favorite chapters in Acts. Yeah. the These couple of chapters are, are really, really good. If you haven't read Acts of the Apostles, at least read these two because oh, they're, man. oh well, man. Eight, start, start with eight. Yeah. Eight, nine, and ten. Do yeah. those three. Actually, you know what? How about just read one through 28? Yeah, that works be, too. You'll be set. <laughs> it's a, it really is a very good book. Yeah. Um, so anyway, Cornelius, who's a Gentile believer of God, this is really interesting because it notes that he was very uh, giving to the Jews. He was a he was a devout believer of Yahweh, even though he wasn't an Israelite. Yeah, he's a, a Roman Roman centurion, I believe. Yeah, yep. he's a Roman centurion. Yeah, and so he actually gathers a couple of his soldiers um, who are under him, who are also Gentile believers in God, and 
he sends them to find Simon Peter. And God tells him prophetically in prayer, this Gentile. I mean, hopefully that's amazing you. I mean, it would be like an unbaptized person today because he wasn't baptized. Even he received prophetic revelation yep. from God in prayer. And again, he didn't say, oh, this seems strange. He didn't say, I don't know what to do. He knew just what to do and he acted in faith on it. And they went and brought Peter, who himself was in the midst of a prophetic revelation um, that he didn't understand at first. But then God confirmed it by saying, hey, there's two men that are at your door that are looking for you right now. Go with them. And guess what? They were Gentiles. And Jews aren't supposed to have anything in common with Gentiles. And so P Peter, even though he didn't know what to do, and even though it went against Jewish custom, he still responded in faith because God confirmed that word and he went a little bit further. And then when he went to Cornelius's house, he received the rest of that interpretation from his prophetic revelation. And all of this led to the incorporation of the Gentiles into the early church. I mean, this this should just be mind-blowing because the, because for Jews, I mean, this was unthinkable. Literally, yeah. Peter came back from this encounter and the Jewish Christians confronted him. Yep. And they said, what are you doing? We're not supposed to have anything in common with the, with the Gentiles. So these two examples they cannot be underestimated in their importance no because this literally set the trajectory of the church up to today. Yep. And I would say, um, you, you say that, you know, this is, this is where uh, Acts chapter 10 is where now, you know, the spirit is uh, given to the Gentiles. Well, they, they kind of should have known that though, right? So yeah. when they look back into the Old Testament, we see that God has been preparing for this the entire way. So we see uh, in Numbers chapter 11, this is one of my favorite stories in Numbers. Numbers yeah. is not my favorite book of the Bible, and I think that's underestimating <laughs> that statement. Um, that in fact, it may be my least favorite book of the Bible. Yeah. Um, but Numbers has a great story here where uh, we see the story of the 70 elders. And so Moses is uh, trying to rule these people, right? He's, trying, he's, he's been uh, put at the head of the, the Hebrew people. He can't do everything by himself. He needs help. He needs people to really to help him govern uh, this people. And so the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them. Bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. So basically God says, bring 70 people uh, and I will um, commission them to help govern, uh, govern the people with you. So Moses went out, told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people, and he placed them round about the tent. Then the Lord came down in the tent in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was upon him and put it upon the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied. They prophesied. So that was the manifestation of the spirit in them was to prophesy. Um, and notice how, how the Lord does this too. This is so fascinating to me where um, he takes, he doesn't give them, you know, the just an, an outpouring of the spirit. He gives them a portion of Moses' spirit, which is so interesting to me that God first pours his spirit into Moses and then takes that spirit and pours it into the 70 elders. Yeah. 
um, which is super cool. And then, of course, the manifestation of that is that they prophesied. Now, I think one of my favorite parts is coming up here. Now, two men remained in the camp. And you can imagine that these two guys were like probably the people who were late to everything. They're, those, these are the guys that are going to be late to their own funeral. Right. Yeah. Um, just kind of maybe just a little oblivious to the world around them. Right. Like this is kind of an important moment in the history of, of the Hebrew people. And they're yeah. late. They don't yep. show up to the tent. So two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad. And the spirit rested upon them. So even though they weren't with the other 68 people in the tent, the spirit still rested upon them. They were chosen among the 70 and they were among those registered. But they had not gone out to the tent. And so they prophesied in the camp. So again, the spirit is given to them. They prophesy. That's the manifestation of the spirit. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the minister of Moses, one of his chosen men said, My Lord Moses, forbid them. But Moses said to him, this is my favorite part, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Love it. Uh, it's such a great, and, and that statement itself is a prophetic statement. Yeah, It's saying that the Lord desires that his spirit be put into everybody. Yeah. Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. And that's exactly what he does. Yeah. That, that's so amazing. One, this prophetic statement that really leads into everything that we've been talking about so far, but how it leads into the Acts of the Apostles beautifully. Mm -hmm. So first, that group of 70 elders that Moses selected, that later became known as what we would call the Sanhedrin. Mm -hmm. So this was actually, believe it or not, the group, or you could say the descendants of the group of people that the Acts of the Apostles were kind of going head to head against. Yep in Acts of the Apostles. And so what's being shown here is really how they received the Spirit of God and now how they're walking in that same Spirit, but even something greater. Because while the Sanhedrin received some of the Spirit that was on Moses, we received the Holy Spirit. That's right. So we received something in even greater measure. Um, so this is, it's just a beautiful fulfillment yes. of this passage in Acts of the Apostles. And then there's another really interesting example of a lay person who's a prophet in Acts of the Apostles, and that's a man that everyone knows, Agabus. Definitely. Yeah. Oh, probably yeah. Probably the most famous person in all of Scripture, I, right? Yeah. I definitely know who Agabus is, of course. Yeah. Why would you question that I know who Agabus <laughs> is? Oh, wait, you weren't. <laughs> <clears throat> so it's really interesting because Agabus is I I may be wrong, but I think the only person referred to in Acts of the Apostles as a prophet. Like mm. that was actually his title was a prophet. You can look that up while I'm, I'm talking. I think you're right um, though. Interesting. And so like I said earlier, everyone, all Christians, have the ability to prophesy. Um and it would seem even from Cornelius that you know, Gentiles, people not yet baptized, um, would possibly have some portion of that gift. Now, all if all Christians have that gift, um, not all of them receive it in the same measure, like I said. Some have a, a much 
much more extraordinary manifestation of that gift to the point where they actually had an office in the early church that was called a prophet. And if you don't believe me, you can read the Didache. Um, It's a very short book. It was basically like a catechism of the early church. And where it mentions, I think, nothing about the bishops and their prophetic office, it actually has a whole chapter on the office of prophet in the early church. So this was a very significant role for the early church. So Agabus the prophet, he was actually the one who prophesied St. Paul's martyrdom. Hmm. So they were in a, a prayer gathering with the early church, and he, he did this prophetic action where he took off his belt and he bound his hands and his feet and basically said to St. Paul, you know, this is how you'll be taken and more or less said, you know, you're going to be martyred. And so let's just say that wasn't received very well by most of the <laughs> church, um, except for St. Paul. <laughs> Shocking. Yeah, I know. Um, we don't really see that with prophets today ever. Their messages are always received. Uh, that's a joke. Oh, yeah. Um, and so it's it's really interesting to note Agabus for this reason because there are some people and note that he wasn't one of the apostles. We have no indication that shows that he was one of the presbyters or clergy. Um, he was just simply known as a prophet. That was his role within the church. And prophets would prophesy to a local community to reveal the acts of God. And so what we learn even from the Didache, it says that prophets would go about from town to town and it says they were entitled to a just wage for them to make a living simply as prophets. And they would go from town to town and reveal how God was working in their community. And this was a very important role for them. So again, not all have have the gift of prophecy in that measure, but this isn't something that is, you know, only for clergy. Um, this was this was very much a, a gift that was present and strong among many members of the laity, as we can see in Acts of the Apostles. Um, but now I want to get a little bit more into um, the prophetic mission of the church, which hopefully you're more familiar with. Um, and I'm going to read this quote from Lumen Gentium, which is one of the documents of Vatican II. Quote, This evangelization, that is, this announcing of Christ by a living testimony as well as by the spoken word, takes on a specific quality and a special force in that it is carried out in the ordinary surroundings of the world. End quote. Um, so prophecy in particular is essential to evangelization. That's not its only purpose because, as I said, charisms are for the building up of the church. But prophecy has a particular role in evangelization. Now, here, Lumen Gentium is actually speaking of the prophetic mission rather than the prophetic gift, but they work together. Notice the words there that it says, it takes on a special quality sorry, a specific quality, and a special force. Like I was saying, someone who has the the charism of prophecy has an ability to make the word of God, whether it's spoken um, through prophetic revelation in prayer or whether it's 
speaking the word of God in a prophetic way, in a particularly compelling way, it carries more prophetic weight, more prophetic force to bring about change in others' lives. And so it's that prophetic gift that that really allows the prophetic mission of the church and of all baptized Christians to carry particular force. Um, so they they really do work together. And this is and then I have a quote here from this is from the Catechism, paragraph eight ninety eight. It says, "By reason of their special vocation, it belongs to the laity to seek." the kingdom of God by engaging in temporal affairs and directing them according to God's will. It pertains to them in a special way so to illuminate and order all temporal things with which they are closely, closely associated that these may always be affected and grow according to Christ and may be, and may be to, the, to the glory of the Creator and Redeemer. Notice it says, it's a, the special vocation belongs to the laity. The catechism actually notes that in a special way, the prophetic mission of the church belongs to the laity. This can't be said enough because far too many people for far too long have believed that the prophetic mission of the church was the role of the priest from the pulpit. And that's simply not true. And the church has never taught that. The laity has a special vocation to the prophetic mission of the church. And what the prophetic mission is, is really engaging in those temporal affairs. As it, as it says at the beginning of this paragraph, it says, the laity, it's a special role of the, of the laity to seek the kingdom of God by engaging in temporal affairs and directing them according to God's will. So we're called to be in the world as laity, but not of the world. And and so we have this transformative effect. When the church meets the world, it's the world that's supposed to transform. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. Uh, As a priest, uh, the laity must step up and start to do this. The laity, this is the job of the laity. There's so many places that I can't go to where um, the collar becomes a wall, where I I can't go there because, because uh, I am a priest, um, but where lay people can absolutely go to. Now, sometimes my collar can be a bridge, but oftentimes it's a wall, and and that's where the uh, the lay people really need to step up and say, all right, I need to take on that prophetic role that I've been given. Uh, so I definitely want to encourage uh, all of you, if you think you might have that, ask the Lord, what gifts do I have? And maybe the prophetic roles among them. Next, we're going to talk about using scripture in spiritual warfare. Next page. friends, it's Jason Gray, and I am so excited to get to hang out with you again this year at Faith Fest, uh, the Outdoor Family Festival of Faith. You should try to say that a couple times. It's a lot of fun. Family Festival of Faith. Family Festival of Faith. Seriously, you should try it. Uh, held on the beautiful grounds of St. Francis Retreat Center, and uh, I'll be playing some music and sharing some stories along with the other bands who are going to be there. 
Um, and then and then I get to cap things off with the traditional playing of glow in the dark uh, while the fireworks are happening. I love that I get to be a part of this every year, uh, but it won't be the same without you. So come on, join us. You know what to do. Come on. Go to faithfest.com for more details. And I uh, can't wait to see you. All right. June 26th. We'll see you there. And we're coming for you. Welcome back to the Flint Catholic Podcast. So today, or for this segment, we're going to turn the page to the very next page in the uh, Faith Catholic Magazine, and we're going to talk about the article, Using Scripture in Spiritual Warfare, by Sean O'Neill. So Sean begins his article uh, with a quote from St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. This is Ephesians six twelve. For we are not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So we start here just to remind us that our enemy is not other people. Our primary enemy are against the spiritual forces of evil. And really, head of that is Satan, the father of lies. Now, I know that our current culture wants to really downplay that aspect of the faith. They want to say, well, Jesus was just a good teacher. There's a lot of good teachings there. And, and, you know, he taught us how to live well. And that is an important part of the faith, right? How do we live? Um, but the spiritual reality cannot be downplayed, cannot be forgotten, cannot be ignored. That we are engaged in a spiritual battle here on earth. That we are the church militant here on earth fighting that battle. Now, we see this. Um, just in the way that we are made, right? Because we are body-soul composites, that we, I think, intuitively know that a spiritual realm does exist. We intuitively, you know, see it, we experience it. Now, if we don't experience it through our faith, we can see it, uh, especially in our culture day, through pop culture. We see it in TV shows. How many ghost TV shows are there? There's a lot, right? Yeah. Like Ghost Hunters and all of that stuff. Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters. <laughs> yep. So movies. Another one is video games. All right. The spiritual realm existing in video games. Uh, and I think actually that's a really popular one right now. Um, in fact, there's one that my brother plays called Phasmophobia, um, which is which is really cool. Um, I enjoy the game a lot, too. So you go and it's a it's a VR game. So like you're really immersed into this. And uh you have to you're going ghost hunting so you go into this house it's really dark and you have to figure out what kind of ghost it is and uh yeah it's it's fascinating it's scary uh it makes you uh yes need perhaps a change of pants afterwards <laughs> <laughs> it's a scary game it's fun um so we see certainly that spiritual reality played out in pop culture today um you know another example that i really like to bring up is doom Right, the the pretty much the father of all gaming, uh, Doom, and when it released in 1993, was a real game changer. As you can tell, I'm a video game nerd. I really like video games, um, and to this day, they're still making Doom video games. Now, a lot of people think that, oh, that game is satanic. And actually, I would argue the opposite. It actually tells a fairly significant truth about who we are. We see that even in a game like Doom, where you're a soldier fighting hordes of demons. Basically, that's the whole game, right? But an important aspect of that game is basically when you're when you're fighting them, 
what has happened is, and this is pretty much true in all of them, is that gates to hell have been opened. And your goal in the game is to close the gate because all these demons are now pouring through. You got to defeat them all. And there's a truth that is told in that, that we can do things to open up portals. We can open up doors and we shouldn't be messing with any of that because the spiritual realities are real. The spiritual battle is real. Satan is real. And we must recognize that. Uh, Sean O'Neill reminds us that Jesus calls Satan the father of lies because lies are his main weapon. So unlike in the game Doom, where like an RPG and an AK-47 and actual weapons are his weapon, in the real world, lies are his main weapon. In the Garden of Eden, he told Eve lies about the nature of God and about her identity. He told her that God was untruthful, was lying to her and Adam, and that led them into sin. So, our first sin came from a lie, and really so do all of our sins. They all come from lies. So being able to recognize and understand how we are lied to is a necessary part of understanding and fighting the spiritual battle. Uh, an example of this, we can't patch a sinking ship if we don't know where the leak is coming from. Makes sense, right? Got to know and understand the battle before we can engage in it. So what kind of lies do we believe? So as we heard earlier, Satan lies to us about the nature of God. We can believe that God is angry at us, that God is vengeful, that he wants us to suffer, that he doesn't actually care about us, that he doesn't love us. Uh, particularly good insight that Sean had here is that sh is um, the lie that God doesn't actually care all that much when we sin. That's, I thought that was a good one. I, had, I haven't heard that one very often. That's a good insight, that God doesn't care at all that much when we sin. So go ahead and keep sinning, right? It's not a big deal. Uh so those are all lies about the nature of God. But there are also lies about our own identity, who we are, that we aren't good, that we are shameful creatures, that our sins are too big to be forgiven, that we are incapable of being redeemed, that we are unlovable, that we will never find fulfillment, that we will only find fulfillment, relief, or comfort through sin. And the list, of course, in all of these categories continues to go on. These are not exhaustive lists by any stretch of the imagination. So lies about the nature of God, lies about our own identity, but there are also lies about other people. Uh, we believe lies and begin to judge others based on those lies. We begin to think that those people are after us, that they don't care about us, that they're only out for themselves. I think a, a, a good example, I think something a lot of people can relate with, is uh, other drivers on the road. <laughs> right that's and we, a good one and we just create caricatures of that person in our mind like wow that person is a yeah. whatever yeah and uh and but without even knowing who they are we judge them we put them yeah. in certain categories and uh and that's how it works right like that's a an example i think a lot of us can identify with but that's kind of a microcosm how it always goes down yeah, it's like I've heard I heard this one example of this one time that that really hit me and it was like somebody was in a long line I I don't I don't remember the context but I think maybe it was like a hotel or something and they were going to check in and and some there was this guy right in front of them they get to the front of the line and they just start screaming at the guy at the desk just absolutely making a scene and and just really being awful to this guy and the person behind the counter, they just handled it so well. They were like, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll see what we can do to help. And they were, they were very calm. Um, I don't think they really calmed the guy down, but, sure. but 
but they were able to handle it, you know, with some sort of grace. And so then the person that was behind this guy that freaked out, he gets up to the counter and he was just like, oh my gosh, you handled that amazing. Like, what's your secret? And he was like, I'm sure he was just having a bad day. You know, mm-hmm. most people do have bad days every now and again. Yep. And when I heard that, I was just like, wow. I wish that was how I how I always reacted right. in situations like that. Exactly. Yeah, because we don't really have any idea what's going on in their life. And, and, as, and as we said at the very top of this segment, our primary enemy is not other people. It's the, it's the evil one. It's the spiritual realities. And who knows what's been going on in, yeah. in those people's lives. Who knows how much spiritual warfare that guy was fighting that day yeah. and just had nothing left. Yeah, one of the things that I've been trying to think about lately in, in similar situations where I'm like really tempted to start thinking those sorts of thoughts about people, I just remind myself, I wonder I wonder where that wound came from or yep. where I wonder where that lie came from. Yes. That they told themselves that they needed to, you know, treat me like this in order to, you know, get whatever result they wanted right. or, you know, whatever the case may be. Maybe ask yourself, I wonder where that lie came from for them. Yep. Or I wonder, you know, where this happened that they they were wounded in, in this way or or whatever. And it, it'll really shift your perspective very yeah, quickly. Definitely. So. Definitely. So from there, how do we find out the lies that we believe? You know, especially when we see it in other people, it's easier, it's easier I think, for us to see it in other people. But how do we see it in our own lives? I think this is especially important because Satan doesn't usually just lie right to our face. Sometimes he does. Um, but oftentimes he slips those lies in without us even recognizing them, without us seeing them. Um, and oftentimes all it takes is for us to shine a light on the lie and we see the emptiness of the lie. It becomes very apparent to us. When we stop and actually think about it, is this thing going to make me happy? And oftentimes we, when we really look at it objectively, we go, actually, I know it's not. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the game Two Truths and a Lie. Yeah. It's like that that's really how Satan operates. Mm-hmm. He doesn't he doesn't give you something that's like in your face obviously untrue. Right. He gives you a little bit of truth and then either just twists it, right, or sort of supplements it with a complete lie. Yes. Yes, and it just mm, just really slips in there under the radar oftentimes. Um but once we shine the light on it, especially the light of Christ on it, um, the lie becomes pretty apparent to us. Uh, so for help with this, I'm going to turn to St. Ignatius of Loyola, my, my bro. My bro. Um, so I just call him Iggy. Iggy? Yeah. Well, I don't know if he'd like that. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see if, he'll, if he likes Iggy. Iggy of Loyola. Uh, so uh, for him, uh, we're going to turn to the three R's. Uh, which which work really well in English. I don't actually know if it works this way in Spanish, in the Spanish language he was writing in, but I'm assuming it's it's true, right? Yeah, close uh, enough. The three R's, recognize, reject, and receive. Uh, so maybe somebody out there can, uh, can Google Translate, or maybe you are a human Google Translator, and can tell me what recognize, reject, and receive are in, in, in Spanish, and maybe they do line up, and I... I don't know but i like it in english three r's so what we want to do is we want to recognize the lie reject the lie and receive the truth now how do we recognize the lie as we were saying this is a really important part how do we recognize it we ask the holy spirit to come to us and to reveal to us all the lies that we believe 
Holy Spirit, show me those lies that I believe um, about myself, about God, and about others. Some lies have been so ingrained in us that it can be surprising to find out that what we've believed for so long is actually a lie. That we've believed this for so long, I can't believe this is actually not true. Sometimes it's, oh yeah, you know, I know I've believed this and I just haven't wanted to face this, but I do know this isn't true. I know this is a lie. So once we recognize what the lie is, we have to reject the lie. Now, if we can do this next part out loud, this is the best. Um, say, in the name of Jesus Christ, I reject the lie that blank, fill in the blank. Um, and it's important that we always do it in the name of Jesus Christ. We don't do it by our own power, but we do it by the power given to us by Jesus, by the power given to us in our baptism, by the authority given to us in our baptism. In the name of Jesus, I reject the lie that blank. And then the last part is um, the lie now has been chased out, so we got to receive the truth. We can't just leave it in an empty vacuum because we know what happens when we leave a space empty is that the lie comes back with seven of his other friends. And so we got to receive the truth as well. Once the lie is rejected, ask the Holy Spirit to fill you with the truth. And this is where the next part comes in. So three R's, recognize the lie, reject the lie, receive the truth. One of the most powerful weapons against these lies and attacks is sacred scripture. Nothing is better than the truth. And so three examples that the author Sean gives are, uh, the first one is when the enemy tells us that we are unloved or unlovable, we can counter with the truth that God loves us so much that Jesus died for us and that no one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. That's from John 15, 13. Next one is, when the enemy suggests to us that God has abandoned us, we can resist that temptation by reminding him of the truth contained in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, that God will never leave you or forsake you. The last one is if we are beleaguered by the enemy's lie that we cannot trust in God, we can fight back with the truth that, from Psalm 91, because you have made the Lord your refuge, no evil shall befall you, no scourge come near your tent. That's a good one, particularly for I love, <laughs> the I love past Psalm year. 91. Gosh, yeah. do I love Psalm 91. Yeah, That's one of my so favorites. Good. And I think the key here, too, I think there's two ways that you can really utilize scripture. Um, and it's not just knowing about them. But one, I would say memorizing them. Yes. I know it, I know that yes. that's a word that scares off a lot of Catholics, but no need to be afraid. It's yeah. very simple. It can be even just one sentence. Just find a verse of scripture that really speaks to whatever lie you're struggling with mm-hmm. and memorize that one. Just repeat it a few times each day. Soon enough, you'll have it memorized. Yep. You did it at one, t- at one point with the Our Father. You can do it with that's other right. verses as well. And so I would say memorize, but also spend time soaking in scripture, whether that's Lexio Divina or even just like sitting in silence and just repeating it to yourself in a, in a more meditative way versus just like going to memorize it. Yeah. Um, but, but really spending time with the word of God and allowing that to sink in and become a part of your identity. Yeah. That's the big part. No doubt. And you know, Saul, and I'm going to go back to Psalm 91 because it is such a good one, and especially for me, I love it. Um, if you pray the liturgy of the hours, the bravery, that's uh, Sunday night prayers, Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High and abides in the shade of the Almighty says to the Lord, my refuge, my stronghold, my God in whom I trust. And even if that's the only part you memorized, right, just that line, that is such a powerful line that you know, you're in a moment of, of doubt, temptation, um, struggle, And just repeat that line, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High and abides in the shade of the Almighty. So that first part, right, you're just placing yourself, 
in the shelter of the Lord. Says to the Lord, my refuge, my stronghold, my God in whom I trust. I'm just going to say that, Lord, I trust you. You're my God in whom I trust. Um, it's so, so good. And that really puts up a huge defense against the enemy. So this is really why it's so important to be well-versed in Scripture. Uh, it makes it really difficult for lies to make their way in uh, because we are so soaked in the truth. These co verses come to us so easily. So uh, be participate in perhaps the Bishop's Year of the Bible. Soak yourself in Scripture. We'll see you next week. And we're coming for you. <laughs>